Welcome to the Do Business Better podcast, the place for ideas you can implement to achieve prosperity. You'll get insights from successful business people on how they do business better. You'll glean tactics on creating a life and business by choice because we interview real business people who've done just that. Now here's your host, Damian Mason. Greetings and welcome to the Do Business Better podcast. It's me, Damian Mason, your host. Got a great show for you today because I've got an entrepreneur who started a company called Fruit Guys. This guy's got a great story. He's my age, 50 years old. He was an, a, an entrepreneur when he was 19 years old, had a college painters franchise. Uh, then he went into sales. Then he started this business. But he's got a lot of stuff in between. He's got great lessons that you can apply to your life and business to create a life and business by choice. His name is Chris Middlestat, and he's joining me today. Chris, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Danny. Okay. Give me the, I gave a little overview, but you have, you've done, you, you've, you're an entrepreneur kind of guy. So 19 years old, you're at college, and you said, I, w- I don't want to just have a normal job. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I, I um, grew up outside of Philadelphia in the suburbs outside of Philadelphia, and there was a, a group out there called College Pro Painters, and they were recruiting people to run businesses, and I've always been interested in business and wanted to do my own thing. And um, when I was in high school, I actually had painted for one of these guys. And so when I was going into college, I decided it would be a great way to support myself and and uh, learn about business. So I, I applied and was accepted to be a manager as a franchisee of College Pro Painters and uh, did it for three years. And it was truly formative in the way that I think I think about business today and a lot of the lessons that I've actually learned uh, over the years, especially around systemization and, you know, thinking about how you solve complex business problems. I mean, there's nothing more complex than being 19 years old and walking into an old, uh, you know, 200 year old house outside of Philadelphia with an open can of oil-based paint. So figuring out how to solve that problem and do it the right way was, was a good learning lesson for me. So, you know, you, you went to college, what was your degree in? That was in, it was undergrad was in business. I went to, yeah, in DC. Okay. So, uh, but what was more educational, running a crew and hustling (laughs) gigs when you're 19 years old or the degree? Absolutely running the crew. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, um, I did have one great class that um, in my senior year of college where this awesome professor talked about, the whole class was around this idea of being a vital contributor. And it was a business class, but it was really much more than that. And it was really around the idea of like, what is the basis of business and what is the meaning ultimately of business? And so for me, I'd been running this, this uh, you know, painting franchise for three years and learning all of the technical lessons about running a business and the personal management lessons. But he really almost gave me a philosophical approach to start to think about business differently. And for me, that was the beginning of of a really different kind of thought process around the way I viewed business. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because, uh, you, you know, yeah, you want to make money. Uh, for me, I've been self-employed for half of my life, you know, in my 26th year. And I guess uh, I, I mentioned it before we started recording that I wrote an article this summer when I turned 50 and celebrated my 25th year of accomplishing this. And I haven't changed the world per se, but I, I feel like there's, uh, you know, vital contributor. That's an interesting concept. But like, I think I made meetings better. I think I've also taken a lot of money that I've made and then done business with other small businesses. And that makes me feel good that I've helped them be in business. Uh, I've employed some people. So, I mean, I look at that as, I don't think there's anything more noble. I always find it interesting, Chris, when people say, you know, you could like probably retire. I said, well, yeah, I probably could, you know, pare down, scale down some stuff. I said, what the hell would I do then? Well, you could volunteer. And I said, 
why would volunteering, there's this idea that volunteering is somewhat noble. And I'm like, you know what's really noble? Running my own business and supporting other businesses and contributing through my business. And I'm sounding like you kind of think that same way. Yeah, no, I think, I think business is a tremendous um, agent of positive things. I mean, and, and change. I mean, and when I think about vital contributor for me, it really um, comes down to this idea of how, how are we influencing others that we work with or inspiring others or helping others succeed? I mean, I think there's this element that business is, is kind of the tide that lifts all boats to some degree. And, and we all sort of rise together as that, as, as we're successful. And so to me, that's, that really motivates me. And I'm, I'm deeply motivated by that and thinking about how that, how I can contribute to that. All right. So you, you graduate, you, uh, you, you go and get some more education, you, uh, get away from painting. Tell me, take me from there on. So I made enough money when I was, uh, painting houses that I, I decided to take a year off and I was able to afford to travel around the world. And so I, a friend of mine, we we backpacked and sort of bought one of these one way United tickets back then they used to sell where you just, if, as long as you kept going in one direction, you never doubled back. You could go all the way around the globe with one of these tickets. And so we had all these amazing adventures and saw places that I had only dreamed of before and had never really seen and just was sort of blown away by the world and the, 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 everything that was out in the world and just all the learning that I hadn't done was so interesting to me. And so I, I landed in San Francisco, had a friend that was working here, slept on his couch, decided to stay here, um, uh, got involved in the newspaper business, sold, sold newspaper advertising out here for a number of years where I met my wife. We got married and um, she was a journalist and I was on the business side. She's on the journalism side and she got a fellowship at Columbia for a year. So we went and spent our first married year together in New York City. Um, I had always wanted to write a novel. So I, I wrote a novel at the time, which is still as of yet unpublished, you know, something published on my desk here, Gathering Dust. And uh, Wait, you're, you're the one that everybody always says, I'm going to write a book. You did write a book. You just never bothered getting it published. Yeah, I try. I had an agent who said I've basically written three books in one and I had to pare it down. And by that time I was, we were, we were on our way back to San Francisco and, and I, I needed to get a job. So, um, so I had, I was looking for work in sort of creative advertising services and I was trying to get a job blending the writing and the interest in sort of this, this thinking part of my life with like the, with the, the business part and sort of selling stuff. And, I was doing interviews and I wasn't getting any work. And so I took a temp job in the basement of the Fairmont hotel as a fax boy. And I was in the business services offices. I was 27, 26 years old at the time. I was working for a 19 year old kid who was literally calling me fax boy and the faxes would come off the fax and I would run them up and slip them under the rooms of, of um, people that were staying in the Fairmont hotel on top of Knob Hill in San Francisco. And it was that are Gen Z listening right now. A fax is short for facsimile, <laughs> and in the old days, it was very modern and new technology. It saved a lot of time and hassle. You 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 plug this thing into a phone line, and then a letter or a message came across and printed out on a piece of paper. So if you're a Gen Z person saying, "What the hell is a fax?" and everybody calls that fax boy. Exactly. Sorry, I, yeah, I skipped over the the explanation that there. Um, so. So it was at this time that we unexpectedly got pregnant and, um, you know, we were going to wait a little while longer, but it's sort of, it, it, it just, life just happens, you know? And so, um, my wife had a job and she was working as a journalist and I decided that, okay, I had to take a big risk and this was it. The clock was ticking for me. So I called up a friend and said, I got to start a business. Um, there was a, 
uh, a friend I knew who was pushing a coffee cart in downtown San Francisco, and he was working at Montgomery Securities, sort of selling donuts and coffee to people. And I said, you know, is there anything I could bring to offices that would be, you think would be important for people? And he said, if you could bring something healthy, that would be great because all we're selling is junk. And so we started this idea of bringing fresh fruit to offices. And, you know, with my pregnant wife looking on uh, at four o'clock in the morning, we put fruit boxes together. We bought all this fruit at the, the, the market early in the morning and brought it back to our apartment in North Beach, which is like the little Italy section of San Francisco. And um, packed it into boxes, put it into a little Honda Civic I followed behind on a scooter, um, and we made our deliveries downtown in San Francisco for our first customers. And I, All right, by the way, you're, talking, you're listening to Chris Middlestat. He's the founder of Fruit Guys, and um, I want to just make sure I get some clarity here. <laughs> you're, there you are. You're, you're not desperate, but you're certainly uh, you're, you're running faxes up and down a, in a hotel. you got a wife that's pregnant. She's working. You're marginally working. Yep. You're living in a high rent area because San Francisco is not cheap. And you say to yourself, hey, man, um, I got to do something more than this. And you were what? Pushing 30, late 20s, right? Uh, 27, yeah. 26, yeah. 27. You're 27 years old. And you just go to a guy that you know that, that pushes around a coffee cart and sells coffee carts. You know, so large city, every building probably has one of these yep. because people go downstairs and buy their donut and coffee, right? Yep. And he says something healthy. You came up with the idea, all right, I'm going to take fruit to people's offices. Yep. All yeah. Right. And yeah. And, and it was, you know, we, uh, it was, it was during, it was, we got lucky on the timing. This is 1998 and it was the first dot com go around. So everybody's drinking like Jolt Cola and eating these sort of chocolate covered espresso beans. And, you know, some of our earliest clients, we, we were, again, we were very lucky. I mean, we were in with like, um, early, early companies in the dot-com wave. So companies that were formative in developing e-commerce technology like Scient or Viant, or there was, you know, we, we delivered to eBay when there were 12 employees there. And um, we delivered early to PayPal. And, and um, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of companies that, that I mean, we, I used to deliver to Napster, which was that original file sharing network that was, you know, I don't, again, for the Gen Z group, I don't know if they know, but it was, you know, it was a, it was an early, the, the first sort of file sharing company that was basically shut down. And it's how the, people used to steal music. That was the original way people would steal music was through Napster. So here's my question, Chris, you, you've got a salesmanship about you, obviously, because you've had to sell painting jobs and, and whatnot when you're coming up. Did you go and bang on, you know, cause I'm thinking, all right, some of these companies might say, yeah, you know, if you want to uh, be down the lobby, that's one thing uh, of this large building where we rent the 14th floor, but you can't just be coming up here and banging on our door all the time. But you went to the company himself and said, can I bring fruit for your break room? You didn't say, I want to go yeah. around individually and like hustle the, the, the individual accounting. Yeah, exactly. We, we had the concept of selling to the offices. Uh, the company would buy it and they put it in the break room as a replacement for junk food in the office. And so we started with the Embarcadero Center buildings, which are these four buildings in downtown San Francisco. We would go down. They had these electronic screens where we'd go down and scroll through every single account and furiously on a pad of paper write down the name of the account. And we had this very lovely security guard who basically said to us, well, look, you're technically not supposed to be here, but I'll let you stay there for 10 minutes, but then you got to go away for five minutes and you can come back and keep doing it. And we, we got 500 leads off of these directory listings. We went back to my house and opened the white pages and we used the white pages and we called every single company and I sold them and faxed them a sheet. Um, we hadn't made a delivery yet, but we were already selling product before we made a delivery. Yeah, and so uh, you, you, we got you, five you, customers out of it. 
you're prospecting, you know, back and again, going back to date ourselves, when I had a sales job when I was like 22 years old, I remember we got these business directories before yeah. the internet and you would go through there and I would be prospecting companies of 10 to 200 people that had this, this, this. So yep. you essentially, your prospecting was to go and look at the directory within an office building and you'd say, okay, uh, Katzenberger Law Firm is uh, in suite. 1302. And so you write down Katzenberger Law Firm. You just, you just yeah. you're like going through because you decided rather than just go through the white pages of everybody in San Francisco, keep it within these four buildings if we can. Yeah. Then we're just driving my Honda Civic to these four buildings. Is that the idea? Yeah, that was the idea originally. And, and we started off that way and then kind of just went target by target that way and grew the business. And you know, we had it, we had a, a fascinating when I look back it was it was brutally difficult because it's it's uh you know 12 a.m 1 a.m getting up in the morning and and buying produce so it's fresh bringing it back to a facility in the first couple of years we went through two or three different locations just you know sort of pulling it together with like sort of chewing gum and paper clips to like find a garage or like a, a, an old, a retail space that like wasn't in use until eight o'clock in the morning and we could go in and pack our fruit in and then get out of there and nobody knew we were there and you know, uh, just really doing everything we can with no money because we, we, you know, we've never raised money and we haven't grown the business that way. It's a family business, so we bootstrapped the whole thing. So at every phase of growth, we'd have to be unbelievably economical in the way that we've uh, managed that particular phase of our growth. Um, and so, you know, Interesting, uh, by the way, Chris, when you said that about the money thing, you know, there's people that think, oh, well, you know, uh, I've, I've got a, a you know, $10 million company. It's like, yeah, and you went and got, you know, you got $5 million of, of uh, you know, money loaned to you against that and all that, or you raised everything that a person like you or me do. It's like, uh, I remember somebody saying that had a normal job saying something like, gosh, I could do this, but I, I'd be at, I'd be at risk. My, 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 I said, welcome to my world. I'm all in every day. You know, when, when Texas Hold'em became a popular game and they put it on TV and people are like, I'm all in. <laughs> I tell people, I'm like, so yeah, every day I'm all in because <laughs> I don't have investors. I don't have, uh, uh, you know, the ability to do that. So you're the same way. Yeah. Your investment at that point is your time mostly and you didn't have a lot of space. You have space now. We have, we have space now. We're, we're across the country in 15 different locations. And part of our goal is to buy from as much local agriculture as we can in the region. So we work with a number, a couple hundred farmers around the United States. Um, we're especially, you know, when in season, we're buying from as much local ag in those regions as we can. I mean, we, what, one of the things I will say that was a lesson for me is the brutality of how hard the sort of the pugilistic element of just like getting beaten every day with physically like a, an 18 hour day for five days a week, um, running that business. And it's a physical business because back then I was buying, packaging, loading, making deliveries myself, coming back, doing the accounting, doing the sales. Like we had a small team, but I still had to do all of the elements myself to keep it going. And it was physically taxing. So there was an element of that, that even to this day, I am truly humbled by in the way then that we think about what our sort of level of, of being thinking about the, the service that we're in, to be honest, and, and uh, service to our customers, um, but also service to the communities we work with. So recognizing how hard farmers work, for example, in that, in that way as well, too, is something that when I meet the small farmers that we buy from, recognizing that they're sort of in a similar boat, that they, that they work that, that 
difficult, hard, physical labor life often in a way that I have tremendous uh, respect for. And that's something that we've, I think, been able to continue over 21 years of honoring as we think about working with the small farmers in the communities that we do work. That's with. fantastic. So was you, you, you purposefully want to reach out to smaller scale operators and also you do sell, I assume, uh, your clients on the concept that this is local as locals can be. You know, uh, you really are trying to get apples from Michigan for the yeah. Michigan accounts. You really are trying to get, um, you know, whatever, uh, uh, oranges from uh, Southern California for your Southern California accounts. Um, yep. And the, the, do you, you sell that. You push that. You market that. Yeah, and, and I mean, we, we have to be realistic with our customers. I mean, we, we, uh, we, like Chicago customers, there's no citrus ever grown anywhere, you know. I mean, citrus is grown basically in California, Arizona, Texas, and Florida. Right. And so, you know, in the United States, if you're going to eat citrus, you have to be realistic about where the citrus is coming from. But what we're doing is we're then moving our own citrus in places where we're working with a small farm in Southern California, or we might be working with somebody in Arizona, or Texas, or Florida, and we're finding that product and being able to bring it into our system. Them. But that's why I say when in season, like our Chicago hub, there's no doubt that the seasonality of what's available in Chicago is going to be limited by the weather and the realities of what's grown in that region. And then also, I mean, uh, you're up in that region, you know, it's like storage. You know, we try to buy from as much stuff even in the fall going into winter that's been purchased, you know, picked and purchased and it's going to be naturally stored and it'll be the freshest thing available and it will also be local because we're buying it through those farmers we work with. So what's the the business now? 15 locations. You work with 200 farms. Uh, that's all fantastic. A couple of food buzzwords since I'm on the food and ag side a lot. Food waste. Uh, does that, is that something that comes up? Do your people say, hey, man, uh, you're, you're bringing me fruit, but sometimes it doesn't get eaten. You know, that's one that's a hot buzz. You hear that? Yeah, and uh, it's been interesting because I actually have gone in the Opposite, like so for food waste for us what I look at is I look at as the ability to donate food waste to organizations that feed those that are in need that that need help um, so we donate a tremendous amount I mean millions and millions of servings a year to organizations around the United States that basically need food to give to people that are truly in need so we we buy a certain percentage we buy a, a load from a farm and there will be a certain percentage that doesn't meet our visual inspection quality standards. So it's yeah. going to be something that's got a, a scar on it or something that just doesn't look right. And so we'll donate instead of reselling that into sort of a second secondary market or system, we've actually chosen to donate it at a hundred percent. So there's been a lot of talk about food waste relative to like, Hey, let's try to sell this to people and create value out of it. And I, I don't, I don't, discount anybody ever from trying to make a buck and figuring out how to grow a business. But we have chosen consciously to take a different tact and to say, it's actually part of our mission to think about how we're giving that food away to organizations that feed the hungry as much as we, as much as we can in those regions. Yeah. And I'm sure that that plays well. Uh, your clients, uh, certainly in San Francisco, yeah, you know, th those tech companies are there. Uh, what location are you in that would surprise me? Um, I mean, we're, we're in, uh, all of the major sort of business center areas, but we're throughout, I mean, we're, you know, we're in the South, we're in, we're, we're, we're throughout the Northwest, we're in the Midwest, we're, I mean, I mean, down in Phoenix, I mean, we're down in, um, uh, we've got a small operation in Tampa too, like, I mean, so 
it's, it's, it's large markets, it's smaller markets. It's really where business aggregates, to be honest, and where you're seeing sort of business aggregation. Well, Chris, the idea is that you, uh, this goes to people's offices. I mean, that's the idea. Yes. Your, model, yes. your model hasn't varied. It's, you're yeah. obviously not a retailer. You're not doing farmer's markets. You're, this stuff goes, it's, it's at the break room in my office. Yeah, we've been very focused on continuing to, I mean, we're, we're very focused on continuing to serve the clients that we serve and that we know we do well. We've done some experiments with sort of like consumer packs and things like that. But to be honest, they've, I mean, we've learned quickly that they haven't worked and we've, um, you know, so there's definitely been some things we've, you know, failed at, so to speak. Um, but really for me, it's been learning that the original goal and the intention of what we set out to do is really where we're best at. And that's really what we do really well. We've built an entire customer service uh, system, you know, account management system behind all of these things, both in terms of people and technology that allow us really to do, I think it well. And, and that's, that's what we need to stay focused on and continue to grow. I like it. So here's the thing. Uh, you talked about where you've, you've had some failures and everybody that's run their own enterprise for any number of time has had setbacks. Uh, Making, what was your biggest setback? Making a decision to try some, it, you know, I would say trying something new, you got to. It doesn't usually kill you. It just, it's a learning thing. Where, where like a good example of something you did wrong? Um, I mean, we've made, we made a number of mistakes. I mean, there's, there's some technology mistakes we've made. I mean, I've spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on technology that we thought was going to make the business more efficient. It didn't. And we had to sort of throw it out. And that's, there's some very difficult learnings there around, the idea of, of how do you find ways to test cheaper um, on, you know, on the way that you deploy solutions that you think are going to help you and how do you find ways to get indications early and kind of almost like develop an innovation process where there's gates where you can, you can kill it early rather than going, you know, way down path and then realizing that this thing doesn't work. So there's been some technology ones. The, like I said, the biggest one on the product side has been, was the, what we called our take home product where we, we uh, did fruits and vegetables uh, for individual consumption, and um, it just wasn't. It, it, I think we learned very quickly that it's a very different consumer. So a B two C consumer is very different than B two B, and we are really geared towards serving a B two B client in a very uh, specific way that didn't port over to B two C as well. And that was that was a learning for us. That's probably the biggest one. How many employees do you have right now? 180. 180. Uh, you certainly have entrepreneurial mind. You have entrepreneurial vision. Uh, is it hard going from you were the guy with his Honda Civic to then employing people? You know, the curse of the self-employed is you get really good at doing stuff on your own or with your wife mm -hmm. or your husband and all that. What's what's the, been the adjustment there? You know, uh, it has been an adjustment and, and there's probably been, I would say in the 21 years we've been in business, there's probably been at least sort of four distinct phases we've gone through where I've had to make a choice consciously to not be the person that I was five years prior to that. And it's a really hard choice because there's an L you have to kind of decide that like you're going to be as if you're a freshman in college again, going in and learning stuff anew. So there's been a number of like organizations I've been part of that have helped me with that. I'm, I'm part of a group called the Tugboat Institute. That's a, a bunch of privately held companies like family businesses that we do a tremendous amount of learning around this kind of phase development. And we also have a bunch of people in the group where they're at all different phases. I mean, multi-generation businesses are much bigger than mine to startup businesses. And you really get a sense of how those, there is a, there is a pattern to the phases. They can happen at different revenue or employee sizes, 
but there is a pattern. So the biggest one for me has been, I, I would say, is kind of the, the most recent phase, which is going out of being an individual doer and being much more of a, of a teacher motivator and, um, and, and a system developer, but even in a system where I'm not able to necessarily pull the levers myself, other people have to be involved then in owning those levers and, and being involved in the design of those and the management of those. And that's something that, again, as somebody who I would classify myself as like a just jump in and get it done person, I have to actually temper myself and be a little more patient and give it space and time to make sure that, that others are, are driving it. You're holding a pin every time we're looking at each other here while we're recording this, and you're holding a pin. I still use a pin and paper. I jot down ideas. I go and hike in the mountain preserve. I get my phone out, and I record voice memos. You, you think creativity is pretty important to your business, I'm yeah. guessing. Oh, my gosh, so much so. I, um, yeah, I mean, there, uh, it, it's actually astounding. I don't mean to sound all like, you know, West Coast woo-woo here, but it's like, um, like for me, like, like dreams, believe it or not, like, like I'll wake up in the morning and I'll be like, oh, my God, I had this idea in a dream that I'll jot down and like I'll look six months later and be like, wow, that was the seeds of obviously something that was going on in my brain, like working through something that, that comes out or, or, you know, even just kind of thinking a lot of, I think when I wrote my novel, for example, it was kind of a science fiction novel and I had been a short story writer. I mean, I moved to San Francisco to be a writer. I didn't actually move out here to be a business person. That's kind of why I got in, involved in newspapers, even though I was selling advertising. And for me, the idea of what the future could be or looking at the way it could be both good and bad and recognizing that we have a role to play and business actually has a role to play in defining what that direction could potentially be is really interesting to me and kind of, uh, and really exciting. So I do definitely draw on that more creative side, the writerly side of me around the idea generation to think about then what that turns into for the, the business. I think sometimes, Chris, you know, I say things like, uh, if I put something on the whiteboard that never gets developed, it doesn't mean that it was a waste. You, you know, yep. um, I absolutely agree with you. It doesn't even mean that, that the idea was bad. It just means that part of what I have always done is create. Uh, you know, I write books, I create podcasts, I create material, I create content. And I think that that's what we got to do. And, and some folks are like, well, why am I bothered? I'm not going to do this anyhow. No, no, no. It's really important to keep the creativity flowing. Yeah, you, you need to actually think about it like, um, I, I feel like that's a great example of like, so you put an idea up on a whiteboard and you never know where that leads to you. And that's a little seed that sits in your brain. And then a couple of weeks later, that turns into something else and leads you down path. I mean, I'm definitely what I would consider an iterative entrepreneur. I am not uh, a planned entrepreneur. Like if people are like, Hey, what was the business plan you wrote for fruit guys? I'm like, I didn't have a business plan. I, I'm much more of the idea that, Hey, let me put something out. And let me get feedback back as fast as I can because the iterative process of my customers telling me or the market telling me or the environment telling me what the right decision is, is actually to me the most valuable information I could possibly generate. I have, and you don't know this, but I have in my book that you're going to get a copy of, Do Business Better, in the very beginning, I talk about when I was a guest lecturer in entrepreneur class and all the students thought that a business plan was the most important part of being successful. And then they turned to me and I said, maybe, but I've never had one. And I so am so happy you said you've never had one. Doesn't mean you didn't think about stuff. Doesn't mean you weren't full of ideas and implementing those ideas. What I always say about business plans, Chris, these people fall in love with them. And then it becomes this, this sort of this Bible that you don't vary from. And, you know, what if you had a business plan and they say, well, where are you going to be in seven years? You're like, hell, I don't know. Napster's not even here seven years from now. You know, whatever. Uh, you got to be able to, they, the word now, of course, is pivot. They love to say pivot, pivot, pivot. Everybody on LinkedIn is pivoting and passionate. Pivot, passion, passion, pivot. You know 
that you sure as hell within three weeks or a month were making adjustments like, yeah, if I had got a business plan, I'd say, nope, I'll stick with it because I came up with this. You're like, no, it wasn't working. Yeah. And the, and the only piece for me that's been valuable out of the idea of a, a planning process is, it, so one of the things I do do is I am like pro form the financial projections and making sure I understand the metrics of sustainability of the business so that I don't fall off a cliff because of my hubris of chasing after some idea that I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, I want to test that. I do want to make sure that like I understand now like what the cost of that test is going to be and is it going to sink the ship or is it not going to sink the ship. There's those kinds of things I do do, but I don't, but again, to the planning piece, I don't want to presume that I actually know an answer. And I, I often feel that maybe it's because I failed a couple courses my senior year in high school or something, but there's something about me that's sort of like, I don't, I really don't believe that I know the answers. And so for me, like I'm very cautious about saying, well, it's really important for me to understand what the answers that sort of the world are telling me are the answers that I'm listening to. And so how do I get to that place where, where I, I hear that I digest it, I understand it. And then I can say, okay, that's the right thing to actually go down the path for. That thing makes more sense than doing this other thing that I might've thought was the answer, but actually customers aren't buying. I love that. Uh, I love that approach because to your point, I also have the thing where I, I don't lack confidence but I don't have an arrogance that I know everything. I find, I see people and they're like, well, you know, here's what's going to happen. I said, I, I don't know about that. I, <laughs> you know, they have such, um, such a, a conviction about how things are going to play out for their business or whatever. And I, I think, well, I think you're making a mistake. One piece of advice, knowledge, personal lesson, anyone can apply for a better life and business that you have gleaned through your 21, 22 years. Um, so way, way back in uh, 1999, I had a driver that came back from a delivery. Uh, and before he got back from the delivery, the woman he was delivering to at a company called and she was furious with us. And she was, she said that my driver had, had been there to deliver the fruit, had given her the finger and had left. And I was like, Hey, I'm really sorry about this. I'm going to take care of this. And let me, let me find, find out what's going on. And so I, uh, this guy gets back to the warehouse. I'm like, Hey, why? Why did this happen? He said, well, you know, I was running late. I was frustrated. My normal contact wasn't there. This crazy woman came in and was yelling at me to put the fruit in the break room instead of where I normally put it in the kitchen. So I just threw it on the table and I threw up my hands and I left. And he denied sort of giving her the middle finger. And I said, well, why would you ever treat somebody that way or be, you know, that was, that was giving you a direction? They're your customer. And he said, well, you know, my dad taught me a long time ago that if somebody disrespects you, the only way to earn respect is you have to disrespect them right back. And I realized one of the most important and valuable lessons for me is I was coming at my business believing that everybody had the same sort of um, value set that I had in the way that I wanted the business to be run. And so I, as, as the writer, the creative part of me, it took me almost a year, but I worked and I wrote on this set of values that we now call the five R's and the fruit guys. And they're five very simple one word uh, lessons really about the way that we want to work with our customers and the way that we want to go into the world. And the five are, have we been respectful at our all times? So we define respect as being respectful to somebody, not because they hold power or position over you, but literally because they walk this earth with you and that we are just, that, that you have to give respect is really the only way that you can earn respect in our, in our definition. Um, second is um, 
have we been responsive to people's needs? So the difference between responding and reacting is one that we teach in the company, that reacting is something that's instinctual and comes often emotionally and without feel, but responding requires you to actively listen to where the other person's coming from and understand them. The third is- I would, I would absolutely concur with that. There's a difference between reacting and responding. Responding, yeah. you imply that there's a, an actual thought and you're trying to get to a result, not a reaction. Exactly, exactly. The third and the one that sort of tempers this, the, the first two to some degree, is, is have we been realistic about what we can or can't do? So we don't ever want to respond with an answer that's not realistic, right? We, wanna, we, we don't want to over-promise and under-deliver, right? I mean, we want to we wanna under-promise and over-deliver, and the way to do that is to make sure you're actually being realistic about what you can or can't do. Um, have we taken personal responsibility for the outcomes we're trying to create? And then the last one, which is the catch-all to me, is when we walk away from a situation, are we going to be remembered positively because of the way we acted? And again, I don't want to give the impression that it means being a pleaser in a case where pleasing somebody goes against our values. That's where being realistic comes in. You've got to be realistic about how you do that. But it's really, it's really become a system. And I realized, I think the lesson I learned, which is to your original question, is I needed a system to be able to communicate clearly to the company what the value set that we were actually going out into the world with meant. And I realized I just assumed that everybody that interacted with me understood that, where I actually had to actually create communication around that to, to really truly, and, and we still have to work on it to this day. We still have to always remind people you know, when we have difficult situations, hey, this is a good system to just kind of run whatever just happened that scenario by and see, hey, were, were we tight here? Or did we have, was there, was there an area that we can improve or think differently about because of those questions? You know, I, I love the five R's and that'll be in the right of about this uh, program, but also remembered, you know, I always say that most of us sell stuff that's not a complete necessity. You, you know, um, we're in an economy and a place in time where we don't need, you don't need Google. You don't need a Mercedes. You don't need most anything beyond food and shelter. Right. And, um, I always talk about that also that I deliver speeches at corporate events. Uh, I need to be remembered and also of value. <laughs> you know, there's lots of things that are memorable. Uh, you remember being really, really cold and almost getting frostbite. That doesn't mean it was good, but you want there to be remembered <laughs> right. positively. And so I think that's really interesting. Respectful, responsive, realistic, responsible, and um, uh, remembered. I like remembered. it. All right. I think, we, I think we should probably wrap it up here. His name's Chris Middlestat. If you want to look up him, or if you want fruit to come to your office, on a regular and routine basis by somebody who is respectful, responsive, realistic, responsible, and remembered, uh, how do they find you? Uh, you can go to our website, fruitguys.com, or you can call us at 877-FRUIT-ME. We have people that answer the phone still, and that's one of the things we want to continue to do forever. So I'm already in love with your company if you have an actual human answering the phone. His name's Chris Middlestat. My name's Damian Mason. He's got a company called Fruit Guys. I know it's been very valuable, and he's got great lessons. Thank you for being on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Until next time, it's the Do Business Better podcast.